I have to refer to my notes on occasion. Um, as is true for every pastor in the world, um, people sometimes seek me out for counsel um, about all manner of things. Um, often about spirituality, what it means to be a Christian, what it looks like to become a Christian, what it means for baptism, these kinds of issues. But there, there's also counseling about uh, some of the, the problems of life. I, these are just some of the examples that uh, I've worked with. Men who had committed adultery um, seeking my counsel. Women who want to divorce their husbands. Husbands who want who want to divorce their wives. Young people who, who have become sexually active. Um, those with life-threatening illness. Women who are thinking about an abortion. Uh, some who are struggling with depression. Men who are addicted to pornography. Uh, parents who have lost children. Um, those dealing with same-sex attraction, some who've lost their jobs and their financial security and are in uh, financial distress. Of course, there are many, many others. And always my goal is to give biblical counsel uh, to fit the unique situation that the, the person finds themselves in. So I'm always seeking to to be particular and practical, but there's always one thing I tell everybody. It doesn't matter why they've come to me. It doesn't matter uh, what their issue is or their problem is or their temptation is or their trauma is or their hurt is or their sin is. I always end up in the same place. And we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. 17th century Scottish theologian Henry Scrugal wrote a wonderful little book entitled The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And I commend it to you. I don't know if it's still in print. I have a very old copy. Don't know if it's still in print. I bet it's probably available in ebook. Henry Scrugal, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And he says this, In the soul of man is a raging and inextinguishable thirst. That's a hard word to say. Inextinguishable thirst. A raging and inextinguishable thirst. Let me define the word. I think you know what it means, but inextinguishable simply means indestructible, imperishable. And to fit the, the, the context of the, the metaphor here, uh, unquenchable, right? So, do you believe it? Is that what you find in yourself? Is that what you find in your own heart? Are you always thirsty? Aren't you always thirsty? I think I said it several weeks ago. And, you know, if you have any age, as some of us do, or maturity, some of us do. You know what Scrugal is saying is true. You're always thirsty. It doesn't really matter what you accomplish or what you acquire. What happens right after you accomplish the thing, you, 
just wanted to accomplish more than anything else, or right after you've acquired the thing you thought would, would really make you happy, what happens right after that? Oh, you might have an afterglow of maybe a, a week at max, but then what happens? Oh, I have to have something else. Your heart turns and it wants something else. Am I not right? Of course I'm right. God put eternity in your heart. You can never fill it. Ever. As John Piper says, to, to paraphrase John Piper, the famous American preacher that I've been talking about all afternoon. But some of you don't know who he is. He's a famous American preacher. Your heart is a desire factory. God made it like that. God made your heart, God made the human heart this way. Your heart is a desire factory. You're always wanting something else. It's never not true. For any conscious human being. Scroogel is right. Our souls are thirsty. A raging and inextinguishable thirst. It's why men and women commit adultery. It's why they want to divorce their spouses. It's why young people engage, unmarried people engage in premarital sex. It's why men look at pornography. Uh, it's why uh, people pursue financial success above all else. It's why people pursue fame, acclaim, prestige, and power at all costs. It's because they are thirsty. They are thirsty. They have to have more. The beautiful thing about Christianity is we understand that and we know where our satisfaction is. Amen? We don't have to chase 10,000 dead ends in the world to discover that none of them will satisfy me. What does C.S. Lewis say? Um, if I find that nothing in the world satisfies me, remember this? It's clear I was, was created for another world. <laughs> right? And we were created for God. So mankind is always seeking to satisfy his thirsty soul. Unfortunately, looking in places anywhere really other than God. Really, the world just is looking at any way to satisfy that thirst other than Jesus Christ, other than their Creator, and other than their Redeemer. And so now I share with you the C.S. Lewis quote that I give you three or four times a year just because it's so fundamental in helping us understand what this issue is about. So listen, I'm going to read just a couple of sentences to you from C.S. Lewis. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of those rewards promised to us in the Gospels, all who would follow Christ, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires are not too strong, but they are too weak. Do you get what he's saying? We've settled. We've settled for sin when we could have God. Right? This is his point. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying. Our desires are not too strong. They're too weak. He goes on. We are half-hearted creatures. We could use a biblical word there. We are lukewarm creatures willing to settle for temporal substitutes. When God has said, here I am. Here I am. 
You can have me. You can have as much of me as you want. Really, this is the invitation of the Bible. We are a half-hearted creature, Lewis says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, etc., etc., etc. When infinite joy has been offered to us, we are like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So I'm going to ask you, are you far too easily pleased tonight? Have you settled for sin? Have you settled for vanity and pride? Have you settled for accomplishment and materialism and, and, and illicit pleasure? Have you, have, you, have you settled? Are you far too easily pleased? Are you trying to quench that infinite and eternal thirst with something in the world? I tell you with all love, it is impossible. You'll never do it. I was converted at 28. I tried for 28 years. So I have some credibility here. I tried. It doesn't work. It never works. You can pour the whole cosmos into the soul of man and it will not move the needle. You must have God. You must have Jesus Christ. This is what Lewis is saying. trying to satisfy this raging thirst. It's the root of all sin and maybe less well understood. It is the root of all self-pity and anger pointed at God in the face of extreme trauma. Which as a pastor, I see this often. People love Jesus as long as everything's good. But when it gets hard, you know, the accusations come. Where's Jesus? Why, why does God protect me in this? Where is He? Why did He let this happen? You, you've heard it too, I'm sure, many, many times. So this self-absorption is the root of all sin and self-pity. So, how do we satisfy this thirst in our souls without engaging in sin and without descending into self-pity? When the bad news comes, it's what David says to us tonight in Psalm 37. It's my counsel to everyone who comes to me. I don't care what their problem or issue or sin or temptation or hurt or pain is. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I always end up in the same place. Yes, again, I try to give them practical, uh, useful, uh, particular counsel with respect to their, their particular issue, but I always end up in Psalm 37.4. Always. You must delight yourself in God. You must delight yourself in God. That's what you really need. That's what you really must have. It's where I always, always end up. So just by way of review, the last couple of weeks, we, we've been beholding the kindness and severity of God. You may remember four or five weeks ago, we looked at the, the, the biblical doctrine of, of eternal punishment. We looked at God's absolute perfect holiness, justice, and righteousness as He punishes eternally those who reject Him. 
We saw the unsearchable greatness, the glorious splendor and awesome acts of God as we studied Psalm 145. We beheld the reigning sovereignty, holy fire and fearsome presence before whom the earth trembles and the mountains melt like wax in Psalm 97. Two weeks ago, we beheld His invincible commitment to us in Psalm 34 when we looked at our all-in God. And I just thought I would remind you what God said to us in Psalm 34. I'm still amazed at this, how much He has loved me and His people. Psalm 34, God says, I will hear you. He's all in, right? He's all in. (laughs) He doesn't send a subordinate. You know, He doesn't have a subordinate uh, uh, looking out for us. He's looking out for us. I always love that about Him. He says, I'll hear you. I'll answer you. I'll deliver you. I'll save you. I'll encamp around you. I'll rescue you. I'll provide for you. My eyes will be toward you. My ears are open to you. I will be near you. I will keep you. I will redeem your soul. Psalm 34. Are you having a hard day? (laughs) Are you in the middle of a hard place? Go immerse yourself in Psalm 34 and rejoice that your God is all in with you. So if we're obeying Romans 11.22, if we are beholding the kindness and severity of God, we will not settle for mud pies. We will not be far too easily pleased. And we will not live superficial lives. These are some of the things we've been talking about for the first several or pardon me, the last several weeks. You know, if Lewis hadn't written the mud pie thing, I think any born-again Christian could, could write that, right? We, we get that. We get the mud pie thing. We understand it. <laughs> Compared to God, juxtaposed to God, anything in this life is really a mud pie compared to Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul writes, We all, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It's axiomatic. If we're looking at the biblical God, if we're looking at Jesus Christ, not the cartoon one, but the biblical one, if we're looking at the biblical Jesus, we will be changed. We will be transformed. We will be. It's part of what... Psalm 37.4 is all about it. It's about the miracle. It's about the supernatural miracle. It's about regeneration. You will delight in God. You who were a God-hater. Or, you know, a lot of people won't own that for themselves, although it's what the Bible clearly says. Well, let me just ask you this. Have you been indifferent to God? Indifference to such an awesome being is equivalent to hating Him. How can you be indifferent to your Creator? How is it possible? Of course, we know men do. We understand it. But how is it even possible? David's counsel in Psalm 37. David is an old man when he writes this. He tells us he's old in verse 25. He is an old man. He's been around the block a few times. He's seen it all. He's seen it all. And he's learned a few things. And he knows what really matters and he knows what doesn't matter at all. Right? And he shares 
with us. Let me read verses 1 through 3 again. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. So we're back where we were two weeks ago. Psalm 34. Remember, Jesus commanded us not to worry. We talked a lot about that. In the New Testament, Jesus commands us not to worry, not to be anxious, not to engage in fear. You may remember I quoted Luke chapter 12, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Your Father knows what you need. Right now, He knows. Oh, He's known uh, from a billion eternities past. He knows where you... From a billion eternities past, He's known about today for you. He's known about it. And He's working in it. We sang it. He's working for my good. He's always working for my good. It's an awesome and beautiful thing. And it's what David says to us here. Do not fret. Do not fret. The literal is, do not worry a question or, ang- or, or let anger be kindled in your heart. Do not fret. And do not let unrighteous questions be kindled in your heart. Now here's the context of this psalm and you have to read the whole psalm to understand the context. Why should the believer envy anything the unbeliever has? (laughs) Why should we envy? It's right here in the first few verses. The evildoer and the wrongdoer. The Bible says don't be envious of them. Why should we be envious of them? I I was reading Charles Spurgeon, famous uh, preacher from England back in the uh, 19th century. And he, he, he drew this analogy. He says, for a Christian to be envious of an unbeliever's wealth or status or accomplishment, he says it's somewhat like being envious of an insect who will only live for three hours. Because that's a dead man walking. Why would you envy them? That's a dead man walking. And oh, guess what? What what awaits you as a son of God? What awaits you as a daughter of God? Everything we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Every good thing is yours. It's your inheritance. It belongs to you. It's yours. You say, Jim, I don't have it yet. That's right, but you will soon. You'll have it soon. An imperishable inheritance protected by the power of God. You will have it soon. Why would you envy some unbeliever in the world who has prospered in the world? The implication is here, no true believer would. We have far more. We're rich, right? We are rich. We're rich. We are rich beyond quantification. The only reason that any professed believer would be envious of worldly riches would be because they love money and riches more than they could imagine loving God. I love 
what James, what God says to us in James chapter 5. Let me just read it to you now. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fatted your hearts in the day of slaughter. No right-thinking person would ever envy a rich unbeliever, an evildoer, a wicked person, as the apostle, pardon me, as King David tells us. They are poor stewards who will give an account and face judgment. They are dead men walking. Verse 2, David says, They will wither and die quickly. A reference not only to a very short life, but a very long death. An eternal death. The second death. The death that never ends. And we talked a lot about that about four or five weeks ago. Verse 3, God says to His people, Behold Me, and if we do, the exhortation in verse 3 becomes second nature. We trust in Christ and we do good. Right? We look at Him. We trust Him implicitly. And because we are looking at Him and we are immersed in His Word, as Sarah Groves sings, something's changed in me and it all spills out. We were talking Wednesday night at Young Adult Bible Study. It all spills out. The good stuff spills out, right? We're not saved by works, but the works give evidence of the fact that we have come into relationship with the living God. And verse 4, the rest of the sermon is about verse 4. I couldn't get past verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. This is where I end up with everyone I counsel. I don't care what your issue is. It doesn't matter what it is. You must do this. You must do this every day. You can't walk with Jesus Christ. You can't be His disciple if you do not delight in Him. You cannot do it. You simply cannot do it. Adulterers must find their delight in God and not in sexual escapades. Spouses who want divorce, a divorce must delight in God, looking for the resurrection of the marriage. Young people engaging in premarital, premarital sex, they must pursue a superior delight in God. Women who want to get an abortion must delight in God's providence for her and the child. Those who struggle with depression, they must fight daily to find delight in who God is and how He has loved them. Men addicted to pornography must turn it off and they must become addicted to beholding God. Parents who've lost children, they must grieve and worship God as Job did. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And those in financial distress must delight in their final reward, which is Jesus Christ. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the answer to every serious question you've ever asked. And beholding Jesus Christ is the solution to every problem, issue, trauma, or sin in your life. 
I want to say to you, and I think you know this, if you've been around very long, you know this, it's, it, authentic Christians don't merely or only believe in God. You know, you hear this a lot in the world. Well, I believe in God. Like, there, there's some virtue to believing in God. Well, any right-thinking person believes in God. It's a logical, rational deduction. There must be an adequate first cause. So, it's only common sense, really, I know there are many, many intellectuals who reject the idea of God, but that just shows their foolishness. Their lack of common sense. Their, their, their lack of rational thinking and logical thinking. Just simply believing in a God is common sense. There's no virtue to it. You know, you hear people all the time, well, I believe in God! Great! Guess who else believes in God? Someone tell me. We talked about it Wednesday night. Who was there? Guess who else believes in God? Satan believes in God. Satan believes everything God has ever said. Satan is orthodox. The demons are orthodox. They know He's real. Believing in God is no virtue. But delighting in God is. <laughs> this is the difference between Satan and the born-again believer. Satan believes everything to a far greater degree than, than you and I do many times. He's a consummate theologian. But he doesn't delight in any of it. In fact, he hates it. We delight in it, right? <laughs> we delight. It's, what, it's what's happening here. It's what David's talking about here in verse 4. Saving faith has never been merely about believing in God. It's about satisfying our raging and inextinguishable thirst in Him. I was listening to Piper preach the other day. On, I was running and I, I always listen to him. He and several other preachers. But I love what he said. And you guys know this. I've said it to you before. But real Christianity is more than just not wanting to go to hell. Right? You just run into these guys all the time and they just want to check that religious box. Well, if there is a hell, bam, I check my box. No, you don't get to scam God like that. Real Christianity is delighting in the person and being and work and promise of Jesus Christ. That's real Christianity. It's Psalm 37, 4. And I want to say to you, no matter what your problem, issue, trauma, sin, temptation, loss, hurt, pain is, God is enough. Yes, it's right to say God is enough, but it's not enough to say God is enough. It's always wholly inadequate to simply say God is enough. God is infinitely enough. God is more than enough for you in every circumstance. Jesus Christ is the most awesome, wonderful, beautiful, loving, delightful, encouraging, alluring, fascinating, and interesting and compelling person you will ever meet. And if you have met Him and if you know Him, you will find yourself delighting in Him. I've fallen in love with this word. It's axiomatic. It's axiomatic. So if you're in the midst of a trial, you must consciously delight yourself in Jesus. If you have suffered a great loss, you must fight to find your delight in Jesus. If temptation is assaulting you, you must pursue your pleasure in Jesus Christ. 
If the diagnosis is bad, you must worship God. You must delight in God. Don't waste your cancer, as John Piper says. Yeah, I know. Okay, don't blame me. I was at a conference last week. I know I've quoted him three times already, and I'll probably quote him a few more times. But don't waste your cancer. Delight in God. God is sovereign in your cancer. Amen? He's sovereign in every trial. God is sovereign. He rules and reigns. And if the dream is not coming true, you must find your supreme delight in God. Not in the temple dream, but in God. If I were a super-duper pastor and I had super-pastoral powers and I could always say exactly the right thing to assuage your concerns and your problems and your dilemmas, you know what you would still have? You would still have a soul full of raging and inextinguishable thirst. If I could solve all your problems right now, your soul would still be thirsty. You would still need God. You would still thirst after more than simply having a carefree life. Let me tell you what I've learned. You, many of you know this already. Our problems and temptations are never the real problem. That's not the problem. <laughs> That's not the problem. Our problems and temptations merely reveal our problem. What is our problem, beloved? We have not delighted in God as we ought. That is our problem. That is the, the bottom problem. That's the root problem. You've not delighted in Jesus Christ as you ought. Your Creator, and yes, if you're a Christian tonight, your Redeemer, you've not delighted in Him as you ought. The other stuff is periphery. The other stuff is a symptom of the fact you're not delighting in God as you ought. And every one of us in this room is guilty. I certainly don't exclude myself. If we are aggressively, continually, proactively, perpetually, incessantly, relentlessly delighting in God, we will navigate the trial. We will. We'll navigate the trial worshiping Him. And if we are pursuing God, we will find uh, ourselves enjoying Him so much that the allure of sin begins to become more and more diminished in our lives. The sinful habit is hard to break at times. But you will start to find yourself getting victory as you delight, truly delight in God. God is better than adultery. He's better than fornication. He's better than divorce. He's better than homosexuality. He's better than blind ambition. He's better than health. He's better than financial security. And He's better than every unrealized dream. Okay? Jesus Christ is better. Find your joy and delight in Him. Yes, we, we live this life and yes, we have issues and concerns and problems and traumas and hurts and pains. I get it. I understand it. I've had many myself. You don't get to be 61 years old and not have some pain. But I'll tell you one thing I've learned. God is faithful, Right? He's a faithful God and we can delight in Him. I love what Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. Paul calls God the blessed God. What does it mean, the blessed God? What does it mean? 
What does it mean? Blessed. What does blessed mean? It means what? In English, happy. Happy. It means happy. He's the happy God. He's the happy God. The biblical God is the infinitely happy God. I love what John says about Him in the Revelation, chapter 22.1. John writes, and the, the angel showed me a river of the, of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. So what we see here in Revelation is this river of life flowing out from the being of God, right? Oh, are you with me? This, this river of life, are you with me? What do you have? Someone tell me, what do you have? What did Henry Scrugel say? What do you have in here? What? A thirsty what? Soul, and there's this river flowing out, this the torrential river flowing out from God from which you will drink forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's why I read from Psalm 36 to begin the service. Beloved, this is beautiful. Well, I, well, I read it to you, but, I, but he says, you'll drink, I mean, I'm in Psalm 36, uh, uh, verse 8, that you, you will drink the fill of your abundance uh, from His house, and you, you give, God gives drink uh, uh, of the river of, of His delights. Verse 9, for, you, uh, for with you is the fountain of life in your light. We see light. God, is our, God quenches our thirst. It's, a, it's beautiful, really. It's, it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful picture. So what is the essence of sin? Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12-13, through 13, trying to quench our thirst in something other than God. You can read that at your leisure. Jeremiah 2, 12-13, drinking from broken cisterns. C.S. Lewis is right. Uh, man's soul was made to run on God just like an automobile was made to run on gasoline. And if you try to put something else in there, it's not going to work. He uses that charming English word, it will conk. The car will conk. And if you're trying to run on anything other than Jesus Christ, your life will conk. John, John Piper said something. Okay, is that four or five? John Piper said something last weekend. And it's true. It's biblical. That God... God's Word threatens terrible things if we will not delight in Him. You say, Jim, is that biblical? Yes. Deuteronomy 28, 47-48, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart, therefore you will be destroyed. As God spoke to the rebellious Exodus Jews, what I want to say to you do you see how self-inflicted all of this is? God says, here I am. God says, here I am. Why are you not delighting in Him? Why are you not delighting in God? Why? God says, here I am. Do you see what an insult it is to God that you've become distracted with something in the world, that I've maybe have become distracted with something in the world? Do you see what an insult it is to God? Do you see ultimately that it's blasphemy? This is self-inflicted, beloved. God issues this open invitation, delight in Me and I will give you the desires of your heart. Let me say two things about the desires of your heart. First, 
To truly delight in God is to find we have the mind and motivation of Jesus. <laughs> this is what happens in the new birth, right? We begin to find that this is real within us. And what did Jesus say multiple times in the Gospel of John? I didn't count them, but I saw at least three or four before I stopped counting. Jesus says, I came to do what? I came to do what? What did He say? Anybody remember? Jesus said, I came here to do what? My Father's will. I'm here to do my Father's will. That's what I'm here to do. And that's what every true Christian is here to do. Right? That's what every true Christian's here to do. Not make a lot of money and be successful. Oh, that'll be great if it happens. Well, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do my Father's will. Right? We find that we have this desire to be like Jesus in this way. And how did Jesus pray? He prayed the will of God. Don't you love that? You know, we talked about this back in, I looked, at, looked it up, mid-January. Right? I've gotten in my old age, more and more and more, I simply pray God's will. I just pray God's will. Lord, God, You know better. I just want Your will. I just want that. That's what I want. I don't want anything else. It was like Jesus in the garden. It's like Jesus in the Lord's prayer. Lord, Your will be done. Right? This is what happens when, in the new birth, in the... And, and this, this is what he's talking about in those desires, right? This is what he's talking about. Your desires become, uh, become, in, they become in concert with the desires of God. Secondly, delighting in God, we find our hearts are radically changed. We are new. The old things have passed away, as the Apostle Paul says. We are new. Our hearts are new, so our desires are new. God introduces us to our born-again self, <laughs> and we find we find these these God-exalting and, and 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 these God-exalting desires in our hearts that were never there before. Again, it's part of the new birth. Delighting in God, we discover. We discover God's dreams for us. What I want to say to you, I've said it about three times in the last couple of three weeks. If the dream's not coming true, if the dream doesn't look like it's ever going to come true, you know what God's doing? He's giving you a better one. <laughs> and what I want to ask you, what I want to say to you lovingly, because I've been through this personally, will you just let go of of letting that dream be principal or pre, uh, preeminent or supreme in your life? Will you let go of that? And just let God have His way with you? Listen, if the dream's not going to come true, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't work hard and, and, and hope, and, and, and I'm not trying to take your dream away, but what I'm saying is, I'm 61 years old almost, and I'll tell you, what happens is you come to a point sometime and you realize, that's never going to happen for me. And here's what the Christian does. Yay! God's going to give me something better if I'll only release my life into His hands. Amen? If I'll just release my life into His hands. He's got something better for me. Something bigger. Something that requires more intimacy with Him. Okay. I could go on, but I'll stop. So, when you come to me for counsel... 
I'm going to try to help you with practical advice, but I'm going to take you to Psalm 37.4 and I'm going to tell you your problem is not your problem. Your concerns are not your concern, ultimately. You just simply need to delight in God as the people of God ought to. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, our real problem is that we've settled. Our real problem is that we're half-hearted. Our real problem is that we've, we're far too easily pleased. Our real problem is that we're not delighting as we ought to do. So, you have a thirsty soul, a raging and inextinguishable thirst. God says, here I am. You can have all of me that you want. I'll stand here and say to you, you've never heard better news than that. You've never heard better news than that. Some of you are Christians and some of you aren't. And when I use the word Christian, I'm talking about, you know, I'm not talking about all, I joined a church. I'm talking about I love Christ, I follow Christ, I seek to do the Word of Christ. I'm a disciple. That's what I mean when I say Christian. Some of you are Christians tonight. And I just want to exhort you to delight in God all the more. And those of you who are not, I invite you to come I'm just the mouthpiece of God. God says, here I am. You can have all of me that you want. It's what God says. (laughs) It's an awesome thing. I'll close with the words of Jesus. I'm a terrible preacher. I didn't even write down the Scripture reference, but it's in John, I think. (laughs) If you want it, I'll find it for you. It is in John. John 7, I think. Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me. Let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This is the invitation of God. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table tonight. Um, We have open communion here all who have made a profession of faith in Jesus and have followed Him in believer's baptism, you are welcome to come and partake. What will happen is um, some music will be played, give you three or four minutes to collect your thoughts, prepare yourself to honor Jesus in this uh, ordinance that He left for us to do. There are two ordinances in in the New Testament church. Communion and baptism. So, once a month we celebrate this ordinance that Jesus has given us because He says, remember what I did. Remember what I did for you. Remember how I loved you. Remember I sacrificed Myself for you. So, as the music is played, prepare your heart, your mind. Confess your sin to God if you need to. Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. The music will play three or four minutes. While the music is playing, when you're ready, come up, take the bread, take the cup, go back to your seat. After the music stops, I'll stand, I'll read a text, and then we will partake of the elements. Mm.